0: Tonight our scripture lesson is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. This is actually a passage of scripture that we've heard already twice during this Advent season. Once it was read by McCullough Tarner. It was also read as a part of our Lessons in Carol service just last week. As we continue to worship God together on this Christmas Eve, I would ask that you turn your attention now and perhaps your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. You'll find Isaiah in the Old Testament, just after the Psalms and the other books of poetry. Today we're going to give our, our attention specifically to verses 2 through 7. So hear now the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. we'll do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let us let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful. As we are gathered here together, we recognize that you are a gracious God. In, in this advent season, we specifically remember the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation. Thank you for applying his saving work through the ministry of your spirit. Together, may we see the humble and highly exalted Christ once again here in Isaiah. May we leave this place not simply informed by the gospel, but eternally transformed by you. We pray all this now in and through the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin our our time together here in Isaiah with a familiar question. At least, I think it's probably familiar to most of us. What do you want for Christmas? Think about it. What do you really want for Christmas? It might be a little late to ask that question now. But we have to admit, right, that there are layers... To that question, We could answer that question in a very straightforward way. I want socks, or a rigid power tool, or diamonds, or one of those new Lexuses with a great big red bow on it. If you're a kid, you might say, I want an American Girl doll, or Squeaky the Balloon Dog, or a Nintendo Switch. But then you can get a little deeper in your answer to that question too, right? You can move to to less objective, more weighty answers like, I want to see my family for Christmas. I want this pandemic to end. I I just want to play with my friends like I used to. I really want the world to be different. And then then we can go straight for the heart with our answers. What do I really want for Christmas? I, I want peace. I want joy. I want to stop feeling torn apart every day of my life. I want love and hope and life. So so let me change the question for you a little bit. What do you really need for Christmas? What do you need to be truly and fully satisfied during this Advent season? On this Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about reality. We're going to look at our deepest longings. We're going to talk about our real wants and our most desperate needs. And we're going to talk about the eternal comfort and the good hope that God has secured for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we start down this road together, you might remember that we're looking at a passage from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, a man chosen by God to proclaim truth to the people of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel. Uh, Isaiah's world was really uh, spiritually and politically inconsistent. There were seasons of rebellion and devastation, and then there were seasons of, of hope and blessing. As a result, Isaiah is a messenger of doom and delight. To the disobedient and the unrepentant, Isaiah declares a future judgment. But to those who belong to God by faith, Isaiah promises the coming of God's blessed eternal kingdom. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah the prophet sees a better day coming. He sees a perfect day, a perfect kingdom led by a perfect king who will never waver and never fail. Isaiah sees a savior who will secure the promised salvation of God's people. As we spend some time together in Isaiah today, we're we're going to examine this promised salvation from three different but related angles. We're going to look first at the reality of our salvation. We're going to look at the agent or worker of our salvation. And finally, we'll talk about the reason For our salvation. First, I want us to give our attention to the reality of salvation here in Isaiah 9. If you were listening closely during the reading, then you may have noticed that Isaiah gives us a series of beautiful pictures in verses 2 through 5. Each verse is actually something of a small self-contained vignette. Follow me and you'll see what I mean. In verse 2, Isaiah describes a transition from what? Darkness to light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, in order to really understand this particular picture, we need to back up to chapter 8 for just a minute. In verses 21 and 22, Isaiah says this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In chapter 8, the people of Israel continually reject God. They speak against him and turn their faces away from him. And as a result, they are lost and groping for life in the shadows of their own rebellion. They live in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you're probably familiar with this disobedience and darkness idea. In the book of Exodus, the Egyptians experience a deep darkness as one of the ten plagues. Moses describes it as a darkness to be felt. In one of Jesus' parables, a worthless servant is cast into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This darkness that Isaiah sees is a place without direction a place without purpose, a place without hope because it is a place without God. According to Isaiah, we are rebellious people and we are walking and dwelling in this darkness of death. It's all that we know. And quite frankly, it's all we deserve. But a great light has shined upon us. And there it is. There is the unexpected and lasting hope. There is the reality of our salvation. Verse 3 gives us a picture of plenty and joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. We need to remember that the Old Testament world was an agrarian world. Lean years and famine, they brought fear and sorrow and death but what's, what does Isaiah see here? He sees bumper crops and exponential growth. He sees a people rejoicing in the abundant provision of the Lord. Look at verse 3 again. The word joy is everywhere. A hungry, needy people have been given more than they could ever, ever, ever expect. And there it is again. There is the reality Of our salvation. In verse 4, the scene shifts to one of freedom from persecution or abuse. The verse talks about the yoke and staff and rod of the oppressor. Now, the people of Israel were well acquainted with oppression, they spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt. But Isaiah actually directs us to another time and place in Israel's history. He mentions the day of Midian at the end of verse 4. This is a reference to Judges chapter 7. In Judges, we learn that the people of Midian harassed the Israelites for seven full years. They stole their crops and their livestock. And they reduced a once mighty nation to a cowering, impoverished band of sojourners. But what happened? God heard their prayers and he miraculously delivered them through the hands of his servant Gideon. Isaiah sees a similar and even greater deliverance. He sees God breaking the yoke and the staff and the rod of oppression. He sees a world where our yoke is easy and our burden is light. He sees freedom from slavery, freedom from servitude, freedom from fear. And there it is again the reality of our salvation. Verse 5 gives us a promise of enduring peace. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God gives Isaiah, what, a glimpse into a world without war. Just let that sink in for a minute. A world with no more violence no more division, and no more bloodshed. A world with no more death. And there it is again, a fourth time. There's the reality of our salvation. When I came here to Clemson, it's hard to believe that's been almost nine years ago now, one of the first things that I bought for myself (laughs) was a fully illustrated, hardbound copy of The Lord of the Rings. It was a present to myself, because I love good stories. And Tolkien tells one of the very best. Near the end of the final book, after many battles, a grueling journey, great despair, and the eventual destruction of the One Ring, we find a small, valiant hobbit named Sam resting from his triumphant labors. I'm going to pick up reading for us this afternoon where we find Sam waking from his deep sleep. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud, It wasn't a dream! Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him, In the land of Athelion, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, "'robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow "'in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. "'Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel?' he said. "'But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, "'and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy "'he could not answer. "'At last he gasped, "'Gandalf, I I thought you were dead, "'but then I thought I was dead myself. "'Is everything sad going to come untrue?' What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known, but he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clear, his tears ceased. And his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, the sun on the leaves like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. In the passage before us this afternoon, Isaiah sees a world without shadow, a renewed world full of light and laughter and freedom and peace. He sees an undying sun after the rain, the glories of an eternal spring following the bitterness of winter. He sees a world that we all want and a world that deep down we really do hope for. He sees the world that we need. He sees all the sad things coming untrue. Here in Isaiah 9, Isaiah sees our salvation. As we consider these verses together, we need to be honest. And I know that's hard. You see, each and every one of us should acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, and our need of salvation. Many of us might be well-dressed and well-educated. And well-funded but in and of ourselves we are still those who live in the darkness we are those in desperate need of renewal and joy we are those enslaved to sin we are the people constantly at war with ourselves and with others you know if 2020 has been good for anything It's been good at reminding us that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Just think about your life this year. Why did you make those cutting comments on social media? Why did you lose yourself at times in your work or in your hobbies or in your favorite team? Why did that glass of wine quickly turn into an entire bottle? Why did you look at that pornographic video again and again and again? Why did you think so long and so hard about that bottle of painkillers that lives under the sink? Because you are broken. Because your world is broken. And because you try to deal with all of that brokenness in a broken way. You see, by God's grace, we need to stop. We need to stop avoiding the truth. And we actually need to embrace our fallen condition. We are the weeping and the enslaved and the war-torn people here in Isaiah chapter 9. We are the lost and the longing people who need more than our endless distractions and our woefully empty, destructive coping mechanisms. We need the fullness of this promised salvation. We need this better day. But even if we recognize that, (laughs) we still come to an essential question. How do we get it? How can we, the lost and hungry and oppressed, how can we ever hope to receive the blessings promised here? How can we ever hope to experience this world of undying light and health and peace? Well, that brings us to our second point, the agent of our salvation. In verses 6 and 7, we find a simple but a profound reality. Our eternal salvation is secured by a great and coming king. Now Isaiah gives us a moving and powerful vision of the savior. Notice Isaiah's specific language at the beginning of verse 6, "For to us a child is born, to us a son is given." Make a full stop there. Have you ever in all of your time in the church or in your personal Bible reading, have you ever heard a promise like that before? You see that's that's offspring language. That's seed language. This is the kind of language that should take our minds immediately back to Genesis 3:15 and the very first promise of the gospel. Remember, God found a fallen Adam and Eve, and he told them, in spite of their behavior, in spite of their rebellion, that he would send a Savior through the seed of the woman. Eventually a child would be born who would write all wrongs and make the world whole again. And here is that child in Isaiah 9. Isaiah sees a Savior who has come and a Son who is born. But you know what gets even better? Because the Son has come to us. To the bruised and the battered and the broken people living in darkness. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The promised son is actually given four names in verse 6 that are wildly familiar to many, if not most of us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we can't fully unpack all of these names, but I do want to briefly look at each one just so we feel the significance. First, the child is the wonderful counselor. He's the source of all understanding, a unique or set-apart guide for the people. There are overtones of divine wisdom wrapped up in this name, so we need to understand that the Son is omniscient or all-knowing. Second, Isaiah calls this promised deliverer the mighty God. This is an intentional and and really earth-shaking statement. This child, the son given to us, a a human being, is fully God. But that's beautiful. Because as a man, he understands our plight. And as the mighty God, he can actually do something about it for all eternity. You see, our Savior is omnipotent or all-powerful. Third, the son is the everlasting father. Father. That might trip us up a bit, but it doesn't need to. A more helpful translation might be eternal chieftain. This Savior represents his people, and he serves as their head. Isaiah wants us to know that the Son is committed to his work of provision and protection for time and eternity. And finally, the passage refers to the child as the Prince of Peace. The Savior is described here as a royal commander who is fully capable of establishing and maintaining a lasting peace for us. That is another reference to power, but it also highlights the presence of the promised son. You see, he can put an end to the conflict wherever it arises, far or near, because he's everywhere. If you back up and look at the way that Isaiah describes the child's kingdom in verse 6, he says that the government will be upon his shoulder. The child is in charge. The promised son is a king, and not just any king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah sees an ever-expanding eternal kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness upheld and established by great David's greater son. Now, there's, there's a lot here for us. At this point, you probably have a lot of ideas bouncing around in your head. But here's where we need to land. Who is this child? Who is this son? Who is this king? Well, just think about the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. How does it start? With a genealogy that directly ties Jesus to King David. Consider Jesus' own words at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hear the cries again of the crowd in Jerusalem in Jesus' triumphal entry. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The author of Hebrews tells us that each and every one of us who place our faith in Christ, we are ushered into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in the book of Revelation, the voices of heaven unite in saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, Scripture is clear. Jesus of Nazareth, that son born in the stable of Bethlehem, he is the son, the king, and the only promised savior of sinners. So where does this leave us? What does this information about the person and work of King Jesus actually do for us? Well, first, it should encourage us. God has actually provided a sufficient Savior. Jesus is our light in the darkness. He is our provision and joy. Jesus is our freedom. He is our peace. He can fully and finally deal with our sin and our rebellion and our hopelessness. Second, we should be humbled and actually freed up by the fact that Jesus is the Savior. Here's what I mean. According to Scripture, you are not responsible for your salvation. You are not the hero of your story. Jesus is. He alone is the agent or worker of salvation. The good news of the gospel actually tells us to give up on ourselves. We can stop trying to do our best. We can stop trying to be good enough. We can stop wishing and hoping and hiding. We can bring ourselves to Jesus and trust him to make us right and to make us whole. In short, we can and should repent and believe the gospel. Finally, we need to see the reason for our salvation. It's at the end of verse 7. In fact, the phrase is so short, we we might have missed it. But here it is again. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In short, Jesus came to save sinners because God is zealous. This means that God is firmly and enthusiastically committed to something. So we have to ask, what is God so committed to exactly? Exactly. What moves the Lord towards saving broken people? In the book of Isaiah and in the whole of Scripture, it's obvious that God is zealous about two things. The glory of his own name and the eternal good of his people. I'm going to say that again. God is zealous or committed to two things. The glory of his own name and the eternal good of his people. Unfortunately, we missed out on the Summer Olympics this year. You may not have noticed because we missed out on so many other things. But I I want us for a moment just to think about the training regimen of an Olympic athlete. These men and women practice and work out and hone their skills for hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years. They change their diets. Some athletes consume, I've heard, 10,000 calories a day. Some of these athletes move away from their families to to undergo special training. It is a complete and total life adjustment. But, But why? Because they're focused on their goal. They want to represent their country. They want to compete. They want to win. And they want to be on that podium with a gold medal around their necks. You see, they are zealous... For victory. So, why did the king come? Why was the son given? Why does God pursue the lost and the hungry? And why is Jesus dedicated to freeing the slave and raising the dead, even at great cost to himself? Because God is zealously committed to our good and his glory forever. He will not be moved from this twofold purpose. He will do whatever it takes. Before we go any further this afternoon, you and I need to know something. Not a single person in this room is beyond the reach of God's saving work. Your sin, your shame, your mess, they don't scare God away they actually move him to action. Never forget and never doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually glorified in the salvation of broken people because he is zealous for his own. A while ago now, I asked you a question. What do you really want or need for Christmas? Christmas. So let me ask you again, what do you actually need to be satisfied and contented and made whole? Isaiah is honest here with us. You see, you and I don't need something. We need someone. We need this child, this son, this king. We need the incarnate and crucified, risen and returning Jesus Christ. This afternoon, if you are spiritually lost and hungry, if you are weighed down by your own sin, if you have been bruised and broken by the fall, if you are empty and scared, and perhaps even at your very wit's end, then I urge you to look to Christ and to lean on Him alone as your sufficient Savior. He ultimately is what you want, and he is what you need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for giving us Jesus. He is our light and our life, our peace, and yes, our salvation. He is our king, and we rejoice to call him ours. Continue to promote your own glory and our good in this place as we continue now to worship together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.